Father, we are gathered here this morning specifically because of your goodness. And we can stand here and sing all we want of your goodness. And we confess to you that even in the act of worship and singing, our minds often wander into the cares and concerns of this day, into the anxieties that we feel, into the questions we have about the rest of the day, into the distractions we experience. But Father, we come before you this morning as a gathered people, asking that you would clarify in our hearts and in our minds the divine purpose that we have in you to sing and to sing of your goodness and to in our lives represent your goodness to the world. And Father, we seek to, long, to live lives that demonstrate love to those outside and those inside, not so that the world would think about how great we are, but so that the world would see you as you truly are. A God who is holy and just, who condemns sinners, but is also slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, mercy, and grace. And so, Father, we proclaim your goodness. Your goodness which says that you are holy and righteous and without error. Your goodness which says that you know the right course of action in every circumstance and you work all things together for the good of your people and for the good of your kingdom and for the ultimate glorification of your name among every tongue and tribe and people. So God, we proclaim this to be a sacred space now. This space where there's not power in the building, but power in the God who fills the building through his chosen people. And Spirit, we praise you because we know that you are already gathered here with us this morning. We know that you fill us and you empower us to proclaim the name of Jesus, to praise the goodness of God, and gather in encouragement and uplifting for the other saints. And so, Father, if there is a weary heart in this room this morning, we pray for your Holy Spirit power to uplift them. And God, use us. Use the saints to lift a weary head, to encourage a broken sinner, a discouraged heart. Father, use your word as we open it together and see the fresh rhythm that we have in the Lord's Supper to receive renewal and fresh grace from you. Father, may this be a day full of filling. And may everyone recognize as they leave this place this morning that they haven't just been physically filled with bread and juice, but that they have been refilled again with a grace that only comes from you. May the gospel be clear and encouraging in the words that we hear from the word, in the words that we sing, and in the words that we share with each other. May we be a people of grace and kindness. Father, I pray now for those that will go upstairs for the kids' season of worship up there. I pray for every teacher and leader that you would use them and speak through them. I pray for every child that you would enliven their hearts to receive your word and receive the life-changing message that they will hear today. And Father, for every aspect of the ministry of this church, we pray your blessing and your covering. But especially, Father, now, as we gather together to open your word, we ask that you would speak. That you would speak through your messengers to bring great clarity to broken hearts, and to weary minds. So speak through us, or speak in us, and speak in your power this morning, O oh Father. In the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for being here this morning. It's a great day to gather in worship 
and to praise a risen Savior together. I'm going to now dismiss the kids to their time of worship, which is upstairs, and that will be uh, preschool through fifth grade can be dismissed right now. And parents, if you, um, have, if you check them in beforehand, you can just send them on. If you didn't check them in, please go with them to make sure they get checked in and go where they need to go. Now, the rest of you, thank you guys for, for being here. A few things going on in the life of the church. I hope you received one of these uh, bulletins on the way in. We keep it really simple here. There's sermon notes on the back and uh, some financial information and some announcements on the front that just lets you know what's going on in the life of the church um, in this season over the next few weeks. So tonight, everyone here is invited. We'd love for you to come to our congregational meeting tonight. And I know that those don't sound like exciting things um, to go to a, a meeting with a, a bunch of people. Um, but this one has ice cream, and so it's going to be a little bit better than you might expect. Uh, but 6 o'clock tonight in the gymnasium right over here, we are going to have our congregational meeting. We'll start with ice cream. We'll keep the kids in there to, together with the adults and eat some ice cream. Then we'll dismiss the kids, and then we'll gather together as adults to hear ministry reports. And the way we do congregational meetings is we want you to know and to hear what's going on in the life of the church. Uh, major decisions in this church are often made by, by staff or by elder leadership team or a deacon leadership team, but we always want you to be informed about what's going on. And tonight's going to be a really special one, kind of, kind of a unique one, because we've had kind of a crazy season of, of change as we've been worshiping out in the back building for eight months, and now we're back gathered here. And uh, what I want to do tonight is just give you a little bit more detail about what's what's happened and, and what, what we've seen God do and how God has, has worked that out for us. Uh, we've shared before um, this year that we're, as, as a church, in a place where, where finances have been tight and giving has been tight, and yet in the midst of that, God extraordinarily blessed us through making the provision for, for this project. So it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we as a church are in a great financial position. It means that we're learning to walk by faith but God's still blessing and growing us along the way. And so tonight, what you'll hear is you'll hear a financial update just on the general finances of the church. You'll hear about how this project went and how God blessed us and God used a number of people to make this whole thing happen and bring us to this point. And you'll also hear uh, updates about children's ministry, youth ministry, worship ministry. You'll hear from, um, from our staff about what God is doing in particular areas of ministry. So tonight's going to be a celebration. It's going to be informative. There's some information that we really want you to know and really want you to hear um, from us in person, uh, but there's also going to be a lot of celebration because as we've faced some trials this year, um, God's also given us some, some great blessings that are worth celebrating. So please join us tonight at 6 o'clock for some ice cream and uh, just some updates on different things in the life of the church. Um, Next Sunday will be on Sunday night, our Lifted Youth Program will start back um, Sunday night of next week at 5.30. Our Sunday evening kids ministry is not starting back quite yet. It will start on September 11th, so they'll take next week and Labor Day off of kids ministry Sunday nights, and that will be up and going um, on September 11th. On September 4th, Labor Day weekend, um, it's in here, we're going to return to serving coffee in the room behind me here. It was something that we, we did very regularly for a long time, and we're back to doing it um, uh, on September 4th. And there's going to be um, biscuits back there too. And I hear that the biscuits are like a one Sunday only thing. So prioritize getting here early. And listen, this is a brand new sanctuary, so don't like come running in here with your biscuit crumbs going everywhere. Like get here early, and that was a joke, y'all. Um, get here early. And, uh, and get a biscuit, get some coffee, and then come and, and worship uh, with us um, that Sunday. I've got a couple of videos to show. There's a couple of sign-ups in the lobby. One of them is for women's Bible study that's starting up, and one of them is for a financial series that we've talked about uh, Sunday nights in September, starting September 11th, and just for three Sunday nights, September 11th, 18th, and 25th, we're going to have a special financial seminar here in our church. We want you to sign up for that so we can know how many people are going to be here, what room we, we need to use, how we work out those details. Um, so Larry Winter's going to present a little bit about that via video for us this morning. And then after that video, you're going to see just a, a few clips 
Um, we, we, we didn't do as much uh, pictures and videos as we would have liked to as we were going through all of the changes in the sanctuary. Um, but today is a day of celebration of, I told you last week that our first goal was to celebrate what God had done in this room. Um, but today we have some thank yous to make. And so before I come up and make some public thank yous, after the financial series video, you're going to see another video that gives you just a brief reminder of, of everything that's happened in the last few months in the sanctuary. We Americans have always been interested in more. And who has the most? Today, Elon Musk is the richest person in the world. $219 billion. He passed former number one Jeff Bezos on June 20th, 2022. It was a news item. Back in the 1920s and 30s, the richest man in the world was John D. Rockefeller. He was the founder of Standard Oil. And he passed away in 1937. And just like today, the news people came rushing to the house to cover the story. And the reporter from the New York Times asked the question we would all expect of the family spokesman. Well, how much did he leave behind? And the answer was, oh, I can tell you of an absolute certainty. He left it all. How often we forget that our wealth, that which lasts for eternity, is of greater value than our riches. The Bible recounts the story of the rich young ruler who went away empty. He had all his money, but inside he was empty. Likewise, the story of the poor man Lazarus and the rich man who lived in luxury, both died. We all do. Lazarus to eternity with God, the rich man to hell. And so we need to think on these things. We also need a refresher course on how to manage our money. Currently in the United States, more than 50%, actually 54% of all Americans spend more money than they earn. And that's the reason that every American owes $5,221 on a credit card they cannot pay off. And with the new wave of inflation, it's harder to manage our money than ever before. So we need to be asking ourselves, are there some tools that we can use to make our finances more visible? Road signs, if you will, that do not cause us to be so legalistic in regards to our finances that we cause our budget to become a graven image. So we're going to talk about these things the last three Sunday nights in the month of September, the 11th, the 18th, and the 25th. We hope you'll join us. If you're interested, please sign up at the Welcome Center so we can make provision for you. God bless you.
Um, there will probably come a time when we'll start to get used to this room, but it's emotional for me every time we stop and think about um, all that has transpired and the number of people that sacrificed along the way. And, and in one sense, everyone in this room sacrificed in stepping into a different setting for, for worship. Um, the attitudes were fantastic from the church as a whole. Uh, very, I, don't, I can't remember a complaint about worshiping in the youth room given the circumstances that we were in. But the number of people, both in our church, in our community, that um, came together to, to make this project happen was just exceptional. And as I said, tonight I'll share a little bit more of just the story of, of everything that happened. But I wanted to mention a few names um, this morning, since I know that, that this um, is when we have the most people here. And um, I want to mention that, that early on in this process, Dwayne Miller, one of our deacons, came in and did, um, an, uh, he's an industrial hygienist, and he came and did an assessment and did a report for us and really got this started when we recognized that this was uh, far worse than we thought it was at first. You remember the Sunday that the fire happened, we were in here and we worshiped and it just smelled bad and we didn't realize exactly how bad everything was um, throughout the building. Um, and then from there, um, Dwayne continued to come and check back and, and watch as uh, SurfPro was contracted to come and do main cleaning. Uh, Walter Carter, Dwayne's father-in-law, was also a part of that and that assessment. We had our electronics sent off-site to be cleaned, and then um, Jason worked tirelessly. in take, he, Some of those videos in there were Jason just taking apart electronics to make sure they were actually cleaned. And um, Jason, David Pasqua, Josh Owens were fabulous in their hard work and flexibility with everything going on in the technology of this room. Uh, we had so many contractors that came in, and we as a, as a team, uh, Jim, Jim Brown, one of our deacons, and Jerry Nelson, an elder, and Larry Winner, an elder, and Craig Clark, we all worked together to sort of uh, be the general contractor in a sense. And uh, we, we brought in a, a designer to consult on the design of the room. We brought in a painting team. We brought in an electrician, um, Josh Hendricks, who's here with us this morning with his family. And um, we can thank Josh for the, the lights in this room. And the thing, Josh, that I want to sincerely say to you is um, uh, you, some of you may not have even known that two Sundays in a row we had problems back in that building. As we were doing all the work over here, all of a sudden, we had a breaker tripping over there that was causing the lights to go out in the gym, causing emergency lights to go off in the youth room while we were in worship. And, um, uh, and so not only was Josh a part of making this room better and these pendant LED lights or what he did for us and helping us light the stuff on the screen, and, um, but Josh also was able to help us uh, last minute come over and figure out what the problem was in that building to help us worship over there as well. And it's just one of those things, Josh is an example of how many other things came up along the way. Uh, we rebuilt the stage in this process. That was not damaged by the fire, but became a necessity as we started to pull carpet off and saw the, the overall general deterioration of the stage. Painted the whole room. We did lots of electrical work. We did lots of flooring work, and you guys can see the flooring work. You don't see the carpentry work on the stage below me, but there was a lot. Other things came up. We had HVAC problems that came up. We had a, a window that was leaking. We had gutter problems. All of this stuff coming, not all of it related to the fire, but just more challenges as we recognize. And guys, I'm just going to shoot straight with you. Um, this whole thing from, from November on ha has been a spiritual battle at a level. It's been a physical challenge for sure, but the, the number of little things that came up to derail this process all the way through, were, there were so many opportunities for, for frustration, for discouragement as we went through this. And I, I remember I went back and watched the video that I sent you guys the first week of December saying, we're going to be out of the sanctuary for a little while. And in that video, to my dismay, I used the word at least until March. And guys, it's August. And so, yeah, it took way longer than we expected. But we're here, and God is good. And uh, a few other names. Um, Jason Hunley, guys, worked as hard as anyone on this building and in this room. 
Um, Daniel Shepard came in and helped um, hang cross and panels. Eric Smith, um, Craig Clark was here all the time. You saw him staining the, the, the cross. Craig Clark moved the boards that got hung this background here. He probably moved those himself like four times. We just came in and said, hey, Craig, he moved those from there to there, and he never complained, and he just kept, kept doing it based on what was happening um, in the room. So many guys that came in and moved, moved chairs, um, and the tech team I, again, David Pasqua, Josh Owens, but other guys, Dan Morehouse, Ben Ward, Justin Fry were all here. We had elders like Larry and Jerry that were helping us manage the finances all the way through. And so many other people whose names I don't mention. I just mentioned like the top 10 or 12 names of people that you need to, to find and recognize and thank. But guys, there's just so much work that went into here. And um, today's a day of, of celebration. So those that... Um, were key um, components of the work that went on in this building. Um, we're going to have a lunch honoring and thanking them um, behind me immediately after the service. So if you want to say, say thank you to any of those names I mentioned or pop in and, and say thanks behind me here, um, then please, please do that um, because it's a, a day to recognize and show honor to those whom are due honor for their hard work in this room. So now I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians. Um, we're going to be in chapter 11. And one of the things I love that God has done in us, and, and maybe it's something that he's done in me that I hope has overflowed into you, is he's taught me, and hopefully us, about what it means to gather together and what the significance is of our gathering, why we gather what we do when we gather, what our priorities are for our gathering. Those have been our emphases over the last um, seven weeks, and here we are in this eight week of this series that is um, intended just to be a summer series for us. And this morning we say, we eat together. And that's not because we have a potluck after the service, um, but because we are at the end of the service today gathering to celebrate the Lord's Supper. When I was a kid, middle school, high school, the youth ministry that I was a part of would go to this place that became a sacred space for me. Waverly, Tennessee, middle of, of nowhere kind of a place. There was a, a small retreat center. And when I say retreat center, I mean this was like a family farm with a bunkhouse. There was nothing like super nice or elaborate about this. But we went there every year for maybe four or five years when I was in middle school and high school. And, and every time I went, there was this sort of spiritual renewal experience. And many of you have probably had that sort of an experience at a, at a camp, a retreat, a mission trip, where you, you, it helps you to separate from the day-to-day -day stuff, which day-to-day -day is full of full of distractions, full of mundane responsibilities, and, and things that are so important, but also can distract us from our walk with Christ. And there's something that is so spiritually powerful about separating from the world, separating from the day-to-day, -day, and getting away and seeking to have real time with the Lord in a unique or different setting. So Waverly, Tennessee became one of my sacred spaces and then um, a, a small town in, in Guatemala known as Chimaltenango became another sacred space for me when in high school we would go and take summer mission trips there. And I remember the fire pit. I remember getting up early in the mornings and, and having my Bible around the fire pit and what God did in me to renew me in a totally different setting. And I would long for those trips because of the fun and service, but also for that spiritual uh, renewal experience I would have around that fire pit of that children's home in Guatemala. Since I've moved here, um, there's a house in, in Blue Ridge overlooking the lake that as we as elders would go on, uh, we had staff el or pastor, elder, and deacon retreats up there a number of times. Jess and I have been ourselves a couple times as well. And every time I go, I meet with God there. There's a renewal experience. And I'd encourage you to think now, where are those places, those times, those spaces, 
where you have had renewal experiences. Because I think for a number of us, you could point to something like, like the stories that I told. Three specific places where I know when I go there, I remember the encounters I've had with God through his word and through prayer in those important places. Is there a place like that for you? Is there a rhythm in your life that brings that fresh renewal, that when you're stuck in the mundane challenges of this life, you are longing for a renewal experience, and that's a place you long for, to go to. I want to make the case to you today that we as a church have built into our worship a regular experience of renewal. And that's how God intended us to operate, to worship, and to gather. Because let's be real, we can't just go on a, on a spiritual retreat every time we are um, heavy or every time we're, sp- we're feeling spiritually dry. That, that's impractical at one level to just say the answer is a retreat. I've got to get out. I've got to go away because we have families and responsibilities and jobs and careers. But here... In the local church, God has given us a practice, which we as a church do monthly, that is meant to be a part of a rhythm of renewal for us as individual Christians, for us to experience as families together, where we are reminded in a fresh way of the grace of God, and given the opportunity to have a fresh experience of the gospel in that activity. And that activity is the Lord's Supper. And when we gather today, I want us to prepare for this table as if we are recognizing our dryness, our struggle, our concern for the things outside these walls that are causing us anxiety or stress on a day-to-day basis. And as we gather at this table, we're here separating from the world, coming together as a people, and really communing with Christ by receiving his broken body and receiving his shed blood. We're establishing here a rhythm of renewal for us as followers of Jesus. And isn't it so great that God in his wisdom knew we would be the way we are? And what I mean by that is forgetful, distracted, prone to wonder, God knows that about us. So God provides illustrations and rhythms within the way he asks us to live our lives. And so many things we've talked about over the last eight weeks are those things that God has put in his word and told us to do as rhythms to renew our life with Christ and our connection to him. He wants us to gather as a church weekly because he knows how hard it is out there. And he knows that we need the encouragement that comes from an experience together uniting and connecting with him. He wants us, he wants us to give up of the resources that we feel like we've earned or we feel like we deserve and to tithe those back to him because he knows how dangerous money can be to the human soul when it becomes a a false god and we, we connect with it so deeply that we find such purpose and pleasure in it. And so his rhythm of renewal that he puts, he he wants us to give of it, to release the hold that money has on us and to put him in the proper place. He wants us to gather together as we did last week to celebrate life change in the act of baptism and celebrate that God is reaching people for his kingdom and changing hearts and minds every single day. And we don't recognize it, we don't see it all the time because God is a global God and he's got a lot going on in every nation, tongue, and tribe right now. So we don't see it in our local community as much as we want to, but we need those rhythms to remind us that it's happening. And last week we got to celebrate with two men whose lives were changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a couple weeks we'll celebrate with, with four more that are in a similar place where God has changed and transformed. And we want to keep celebrating those things. So all these things that we've talked about over the last eight weeks, they are rhythms to renew ourselves because God knows that though we have been made new in Christ and we are a new creation and the old has gone and the new has come, God knows that even in, that, in the midst of that truth, we're still prone to get off track 
We're so prone to wonder. And so we're going to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today. And we're going to see a rich passage that the Apostle Paul gives to the church in Corinth. And this is a, a message to a particular church with a particular context that becomes then a message to all of us who would believe and follow Christ. And so I'm going to read for us uh, just these first few verses first. And we're going to see from this passage the problem that was arising from Corinth's practice of the Lord's Supper. But then we're going to see the truth about what the Supper really is about and how it should really be practiced. We're going to look at the risk in the Supper because, listen, here's the thing that I pastorally need to remind you of. There is risk in taking this Supper improperly. Paul says it to us. The Spirit of God tells us this. But then there's a call. There's a call to practice the Supper and how we do it. So first, the problem in Corinth. Let's look at verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. We'll stop right there. That's a pretty strong statement from the Apostle Paul writing to this local church. And he's told them some things that they've done right. But honestly, 1 Corinthians is a lot of, guys, you're really missing the mark on this thing, you're missing the mark on this thing. And so much of it was broadly uh, centered around the problem of the community, that they were not living as a church community. There were so many issues that were causing division within this church that that's the, really the purpose in Paul's letter, is stop being so divided and try to be more united around the central truth of the gospel and live transformed lives together as a community. So recognize, Paul's just told us in verse 17, what's about to follow is bad news for Corinth. They've messed up somewhere. So let's see where they've messed up. Verse 18, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's the problem. The first problem is great division within the church in Corinth. And we can do some cultural background study of Corinth and see that in Corinth, Corinth was a, uh, a wealthy city, it was a, a big city in the ancient world. We're talking about first century is the setting of when Paul wrote this letter to them. And Corinth was a, was a party kind of a city. Festive meals, big celebrations. In the city of Corinth, a meal was an occasion for celebrating or gaining social status. That if you wanted to be somebody in Corinth, you wanted to be at all the right meals. And you wanted to have a place of honor at the right meals. And so the dinner party is a primary place where somebody could, as an outsider, absorb, uh, observe. What is the social standing of everybody in this room? And at an average dinner party in Corinth, it would be clear. These are the people of high standing sitting at the high table over here. These are the people of low standing over here in the corner. They're getting the food first. They're getting the food last. And there's a whole bunch of degrees in the middle. And so culturally, we know from the study of the way the society in Corinth was in the day, that was true of general society. Here's the problem with that. The church is not supposed to look like the world. The church in Corinth was supposed to be different and that the same issues that were prevalent in the secular society of Corinth were prevalent in the church. And so when they gathered to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to eat the body and to drink the blood of Jesus, as they did that, the same sort of thing happened. You have the people of high social standing over here, and they get to the table first. And the people of low social standing don't even get the bread and wine, which is such a beautiful celebration and picture of the gospel. The people of high standing are drunk on the communion wine before the people of low standing even get a little bit of it. That's a huge problem. It, it, it would sound so foreign within the, the church today because we, we do it a little differently. 
But the, the ancient church, what they would do is they would celebrate the Lord's Supper as a part of a larger meal. And in fact, there was a sense that that, that really makes a lot of sense. Because before there was the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, there was the Passover Supper. And Passover was a supper that instructed the people, that meant something, that told a historical story about God's deliverance of, of Israel. But the Passover was also a big meal where everybody ate their fill. And, and, and it was a big um, community celebration and kind of like a potluck meal amongst the family of believers. And so the Lord's Supper became that same similar kind of thing where, yeah, you would have the wine that was represent Jesus' blood and you'd have the bread that represented Jesus' body. But they would also eat a lot of other food along the way. And so in this, the problem was that some people were taking all of the food and others were not receiving any. So this beautiful practice that was designed by God to demonstrate how different the world, the, the church looks from the world was just another opportunity to, for the church to look exactly like the world. It was intended to create, sustain, and, and to display to the world a different type of community. The goal was for people to be able to gather in a church in Corinth and for an outsider to come in and be like, whoa, this is different. All of the normal social separation has disappeared in this meal. And you have the people of high social standing eating with the people of low social standing. Because what the gospel tells us and what the Lord's table reminds us of is that the gospel levels people. Jesus' broken body and shed blood levels social strata. And those that were once of high social standing now recognize they are guilty sinners just like those of low social standing. Why is that so hard for me to say? The Lord's Supper should be a leveling practice, celebrating an upside-down social order. But in the church in Corinth, they looked just like the world. Some were genuine in this practice. He's, he's not blaming everybody. He says in verse 19 that the factions actually prove that, he, that it's easier to tell those that are genuine believers and genuine disciples by the factions amongst everybody else. But what they were doing is they were dishonoring the Lord. It's not just about the poor people. It's, Paul gets onto them for dishonoring the poor people of low social standing. But he says, in so doing, in dishonoring the poor who have less, you are dishonoring the Lord. You're making a mockery of the cross, of his broken body and shed blood. And so this is a, a reminder to us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do not, whether we're celebrating the Lord's Supper or not, let's just make this a general call for entering into worship. We do not enter into worship as a gathered body with our focus first and foremost on our own needs on our own desires, on our own selves. That's what leads to this problem, is that the people who had the opportunity to take advantage of the system did because they were thinking of their own needs and their own desires. And so within a local church, we are called to be different from the world and to put, put the needs and desires of others before the needs and desires of ourselves. So some were going hungry, some were getting drunk, the poor were being humiliated in verse 22. And the Lord was being dishonored. It was a minimization of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He says, you people not have houses? Like, you don't have your own food at your house? You don't come to church, come to the Lord's table to fill your stomach. You come to worship to fill your soul. Go fill your stomach at home. Go eat your fill at home. That's the instruction here. So there's the problem. That's pretty clear. And now what is the truth about the supper? Verse 23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the covenant, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the truth about the supper is that it is a proclamation of the death of Jesus. And that's the best news. That's the news that we need to be reminding ourselves and, and recommitting to every single day. But then when we gather as a church, we commit to it at a greater level in community. And when we practice the Lord's Supper together, we, we, we celebrate it at an even deeper level. But here's the thing that the enemy does. The enemy takes something beautiful and he comes in and he distracts the church from the beauty. And Satan comes in and twists things and confuses people and uses the sinful flesh that's within people to lead it in a different direction. So that's the first thing we talked about as the problem was that Corinth, because people are selfish and because people are sinful, they, they applied it the wrong way. They misused the Lord's Supper. But now, we, we in our generation too, we have, we have struggles with the Lord's Supper. And, and we have for, for hundreds of years of church history. Because there's all these arguments about what it does and doesn't mean and what value we should place on it, what level of significance we should place on it, and it gets us so confused that we don't know. We, we don't know how important this is, what it means, is it just a picture, is it just a symbol that is a really nice symbol, or is there something really spiritually significant to it? Some would, see, would use the view that the supper is a memorial. Some would use the view that the supper is a, is a ritual, that has real spiritual significance. Uh, those that, that see the, the supper as a memorial would say that what happens in the Lord's Supper is Christ is here and you have the responsibility of focusing on Christ and disciplining your mind to make sure that you are getting the right experience out of it. But the problem with that is if it's just a memorial and it's all up to us to, to handle the memorial rightly and to discipline our minds rightly, what happens if we're distracted? What happens if we're forgetful? What happened if we've had a really bad morning? Then, then what do we do with that? Is the Lord's Supper just not for us because our mind is wondering? There's another view that, that sees the supper as a ritual where it's not a subjective thing. Christ is here physically present in the blood and in the wine, and communion is about a, this mystical process of taking it, whether you're feeling it or not, you're taking it because Christ is present in it and Christ is going to work through this. And you, as, a, as you ingest the broken body and shed blood, you are given more spiritual power or spiritual um, energy to fulfill your religious duty. But the problem with this is that it, it takes a little bit of the personal connection out of it because it's something that you do begrudgingly, something that you do reluctantly. And there's, there's got to be, be a right answer between those two, where it's all emotional, and if your emotions or your mind are distracted, then it's just not for you, or it's all ritual, and it's impersonal. We've got to find a, a third way forward here of what spiritual communion really is. And I think so much of the separation comes from uh, what Jesus means when he, when he holds up a piece of bread and says, this is my body. In what sense, Jesus? What are you talking about? Because, listen, y'all, this would be a crazy scene in history to observe. Jesus is leading a Passover Seder meal. And nobody in the room sees what's coming. And they get to the point in the supper where Jesus takes the, the piece of bread, the afikomen, and he breaks it. And, and in that he said, oh, by the way, this is, this is my body. And everybody in the room's like, what? Can, can, he, can he do that? Is he allowed to say that? And then he picks up the cup and he says, this is my blood. It's, it's a crazy thing to think about. The way that Jesus shocked his closest friends that night to say, this is my body, this is my blood. And then for 2,000 years since then, we've kind of struggled to understand in what sense is it his body and is it his blood? Here's the way I think we need to think about it. In the same book, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is this not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
So the objective reality of Christ's work is present in the supper. But it is appropriated to us by the work of the Spirit. Christ is spiritually present even when he's not physically present. But our subjective experience of, of, the, of the supper is also important. Our emotional connection to the experience is important. In the Lord's Supper, we come and we discipline ourselves to say, even when I don't feel it, I know I need it. And that's what a rhythm of renewal is. That sometimes you walk in faithfulness even when it doesn't feel right. Even when it doesn't feel like what you want to do at the time. You recognize and you discipline yourself to know this is what is most important for you right now is a fresh experience of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. So guys, Jesus is here. And he's here with us in a real sense. And Jesus doesn't have to be with us in a physical sense for him to be with us in a real sense. That's one of the core doctrines that we believe and apply throughout all of following Christ with our lives. That there is a real connection to Jesus that we experience through the renewal practice of receiving his broken body and shed blood again and again and again. And so the goal is personal and the goal is communal. The goal is personal in that each one of us receives real personal renewal and reconnection to Jesus through this practice. But it's also communal as we break down the divisions between us, as we take of the supper, as we're all equal at the foot of the cross. And so the fact that this is, was Jesus' last meal, the fact that Jesus was, was adopting the Passover and expanding the meaning of the Passover and said the Passover means so much more than you ever thought it did, all of that is essential to know about the truth of this supper. But now the risk. Whoever therefore eats the bread or, ex or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So the risk here is being guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. To take the body and blood of Jesus while casting judgment on others, while not examining ourselves, while not judging ourselves for where, how we are doing in our faithfulness to Christ and in our lives of sin, if we are, are not focused on where our own relationship with Christ is and confessing our own sin in the supper, Paul warns us, you will drink judgment on yourselves. And it's crazy to think about that he says, there are people in your church that are sick for that reason. That's, that's kind of stunning and, and concerning. To think that there may actually be people within a church gathering that are weak or sick because of their disobedience or their misappropriation, their misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. That's why we think it's so vital and important that we discern that this is a meal for believers who are in right standing with God. And so this is something that when we practice it together, we discern have we received the gospel? Have we been transformed by the gospel? Are we being called out by Jesus? And when you eat the supper, you examine yourself to ensure that you are in a right standing with God before doing so. And parents, we encourage you to help your children in that action of discernment. I know many of the kids are upstairs right now. Some of the kids are in this room. But parents, whenever, and we want to at times, we will intentionally do the Lord's Supper with, with all of the kids in the room so that they can see it, they can experience, and they can learn what it's all about. But parents, that's a responsibility for you to discern within your own children their knowledge and understanding of the gospel and discern whether or not it is right for them to receive the supper, but also discern whether it is right for you to receive the supper. There's a really simple call at the end of this whole thing, though, and it is predominantly in verse 28, and that's where, that's where we're, we'll start winding up in verse 28. Let a person 
Examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Three central commands. Examine, eat, drink. That's what I want you to leave with as we prepare for the supper this morning. Examine. How do we show proper reverence for what Jesus did at the cross through what we do? We recognize and remember the gospel. The gospel that says we were created in the image of God as worshipers of him, and we were called by him to proclaim his glory. We were given revelation by him, by which we could receive him, understand him, and worship him. And yet each of us willfully turned away from worship of God and turned towards worship of lesser things. And when we turn away from worship of God and turns towards worship of other things, that is called sin. And we become sinners in thought and in deed. And in our sin, we incur then for ourselves punishment because sin is rebellion against God. Sin in, in the, the actual meaning of the word is like when you shoot an arrow and you miss the mark. And all of us have sinned in the sense that we have missed the mark of perfection set out by God. And nobody, nobody is innocent of missing that mark. And so then we all deserve condemnation and condemnation from a holy and just God, from an eternal God full of power. That condemnation is eternal condemnation, separation from him, punishment from him. And yet, God in his grace, his love, and his goodness has provided a way through a broken body and shed blood. When God himself became a man, Jesus, the Son of God, died for us to pay the penalty. Because from the beginning of Scripture, it's always blood. It's always blood that is a part of a sacrifice for sin. It's always, every story about atoning for sin requires a blood sacrifice. And now... We have it once and for all to make us pure and spotless for the throne of God. But it did not end at his death. The gospel doesn't end with Christ paying for sins and being in the grave. The gospel includes Christ rising again from the dead to show his victory over all enemies. And nobody will stop him. Nobody will, will distract him. Nobody will delay him. Nobody is able to stop the expanse of his kingdom. And we are called as his followers, as his disciples, to come along with him in what he's doing. So the gospel says, you were broken, you were a sinner, and you deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus died so that you could have life. And he rose so that you would be a part of his victorious royal family for all eternity. And when we examine ourselves in preparation for the supper, we ask, are our lives rightly representing that set of truths that we just remembered? Are our lives rightly demonstrating the forgiveness and grace that would be indicative of people that were so radically transformed by the, by the story of sacrificial death that Jesus accomplished for us? Those who have been forgiven much forgive much. So we examine. We confess our sins. We examine our judgments towards others as we approach the supper. But then we eat. Verse 33, my brothers, when you come to eat, wait for one another. Let the other go first, it says. If anyone is hungry, eat at home first, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. He says other details. I'm going to tell you more about that later. So when we come together for the Lord's Supper, we're not eating to fill our physical hunger. We're eating, we're eating to be refreshed in our spiritual need, to be reminded of this message that we need to know and live each and every day. This is our spiritual retreat as a church family. That we step away from the, the desire for physical provision and the steak and potatoes that we all love. And we come and we recognize more than we need steak and potatoes. We need the bread and the wine of the communion supper. Ephesians 5.18 We drink we examine, we eat, we drink. In Ephesians 5.18, we read it last week, and I told you this is a distracting verse because last week I was trying to tell you we're supposed to sing. But there's this verse thrown in there in Ephesians 5 about alcohol that distracts everybody from talking about singing. This is the verse. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
God is telling us that when we drink the communion juice, the communion wine, we are reminding ourselves to be led by the Spirit and not any other substance. And so drunkenness is a sin that we should call a sin without any mistake. And yet this communion juice, and some churches do communion wine and there's nothing wrong with that. We use, we use juice because I think that wine can cause a distraction for some people. But we gather together and we consume this juice as a representation that we do not want to be filled with any substance other than Christ. We don't want another substance to, to move our thinking, our wills, in a direction away from Christ. Nor do we want that to be true of our emotions, of our, of our desires. We don't come together and say, follow your heart. We don't come together and say, do what feels right. We come together and say, be led by Jesus. Be drunk and filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the practice we do when we consume this juice today. We remind ourselves we want to be filled with Jesus and led by the Spirit. I'm going to ask the guys that are going to help me serve communion to come forward, and I'm going to read this one final quote. Because we want the Spirit of God to, to, to bind us together. Uh, Don Carson, in a book called Love in Hard Places, said this. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. So a group of people that have nothing else in common, we gather together as one body with a common allegiance to the Christ who has saved us. And in that sense, we, we examine ourselves to prepare and ensure that we really are demonstrating that common allegiance. Carson says, Christians are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And so this morning, as we distribute these elements, I want to encourage you to renew your loving commitment to Christ based on what he has done at the cross, based on the sacrifice he paid for us and the grace that he has given us, we gather together to say that none of the divisions that we once held matter anymore, but we are one. If we are truly in Christ, we are one at the foot of the cross. And so again, this week we will celebrate um, the Lord's Supper using these packets that have the bread and juice together. So the band's gonna lead us in a song. And I'd encourage you to, to worship as you feel led to worship. These guys are going to come down the aisles. They're going to pass them out. Everybody is going to get one of these and then hold it and sing with us. Stand and sing, sit in reflection and examination. And at the end of the song, we'll come back all together and we'll receive the Lord's Supper together. How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name Into the night And through the darkness Your loving Tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living God.
first is we'll take the bread and so peel off the layer of plastic that protects the bread and I want you to take it in your hands and recognize the significance of what you hold that the argument about to what extent Jesus is physically present in this sacrifice is, is not nearly as significant as what he has spiritually ultimately really eternally accomplished for us through his body being broken he took those that were broken and he made us new and so we do this in remembrance of him take and eat in remembrance of him and now if you would take the cup a reminder that atonement for sin required the shedding of blood. And finally, after generations of bloody sacrifices in the temple, the old covenant 
was fulfilled in the new. And Jesus took this cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant was beautiful in the way it made provision for sins for a holy God to retain relationship with a sinful people. And the new covenant is so much more beautiful in its fulfillment and the once and for all sacrifice we've received in Christ. Do this in remembrance of him. And now, we've fallen out of this practice, but I hope you can remember what we do now. We will receive the Samaritan offering together. And I'll remind you, this offering is not for funding of the general ministries of the church. We ask you to contribute your regular tithes and offerings through the boxes in the back of the church and in the lobby. This is an offering that we call the Samaritan offering that intentionally and only goes out of the church to to fund real, physical, felt needs of people in our community. But also in ministering to their felt needs, we also minister the gospel and share the hope of Christ with them. So let me pray for this offering and then we'll receive it in obedience to Jesus. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to receive freely and fully from the cross what you have done for us, for our salvation from sins. And now out of the abundance of what we have received for you, now we respond in giving back to you. We praise you for the renewal that comes in the receiving of the Lord's Supper. And now we praise you for the new grace that comes as we give of ourselves and we give of our possessions unto you that you would use them for your kingdom and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And all my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so good. Every breath. The goodness of God all my life, and all my life you have been faithful, and all my life you have been so, so. blessing from the Lord. On the basis of the finished work of Christ, we now receive the blessing of a people who have been saved and made righteous, not through our own efforts, but through Christ on the cross. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.